Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So it's great to see everyone today, this morning. I also wanted to say how much I appreciate all of you, your kindness, your meta, your caring offers for help, and how we've come together during this time. One of the silver linings of this pandemic has been that maybe before the pandemic, we couldn't afford a storefront or even an office room to gather throughout the week. Um, it was so expensive to rent space. As a result of our pandemic and the use of Zoom, we've become a virtual Zendo. And some of you have been sitting together at seven in the morning. It's been so lovely to see you in the morning and sit with you and share this time. And some of you have been coming on at seven in the evening. And I really feel so close and intimate um, and have enjoyed getting to hear more about your practice, the depth of your practice and the growth of each one of you in the Sangha. Uh, so it's just been lovely to, uh, to, to experience this. And we'll continue into the new year to sit at seven. And we're working on maintaining some way to sit at seven again. Um, and the goal, really, if there is a goal, is to create a habit of meditation throughout the day. So uh, today I wanted to continue with the talk uh, that was started last week by Casey which came out of a conversation that the two of us were having about uh, what did we want to teach? What did we want to focus on in 2021? We both really paused a bit and, and said, um, you know, uh, mindfulness is wonderful and so helpful in our culture and is being used everywhere for everything, which is good. You know, it's, it's wonderful, but we really don't want to lose the impact of the Buddhist teachings in mindfulness and particularly um, the three marks of existence with the emphasis on um, anatta, non-self, because uh, it's like you take a very lovely ride in the countryside but you get off the tour bus before the big attraction, right? So you take half the ride, we feel. And um, we really wanna go all the way on the ride, you know, all the way through. And, and so I'm coming back to this subject again. I feel like there's more to mine. We could talk about this every day for years and never fully mine all the gold of this topic. So the three marks of existence that the Buddha talked about is dukkha suffering, uh, anatta non-self, and impermanence. So those are the three marks. Um, impermanence, suffering, and not-self, who I take myself to be. 
And uh, Casey went over this quite a bit and I, I won't repeat the talk, but basically um, the Buddha talked about how in our awareness, our existence, our day-to-day moment by moment waking up, there's a thread of dukkha, a thread of suffering, a thread of stress, or just not good enough, irritation, things aren't the way we want them to be. In our uh, world day-to-day, in our life, we just can't line the world up to make it work for us perfectly. You know, if you're having a great breakfast, the um, the neighbor next door will do something loud, noise will come, construction, um, or something will break, or a bill will come that you don't want to pay, or a phone call or a text. The world just doesn't always line up. We can't avoid this dukkha, this suffering. And when we run from it and block ourselves from it, tune out from it, Um, we're causing more suffering sometimes, you know, or when we grasp, hold on and make that suffering pervasive where it's our whole consciousness and we're just our suffering, uh, that becomes um, more painful too. So uh, there, there gets created desire and clinging and grasping, this desire to remove the suffering. And I'll give you one uh, example from a Dharma student that um, someone shared with me recently. Um, A Dharma student was telling me a story about um, in October, November, she found out about a month long retreat in Idaho, a beautiful part of Idaho. And she thought to herself, ah, this is perfect. I don't have to shelter in place in my home. I'm tired of my home. I'm tired of LA with fires and all the difficulties here. I don't have to hear media. I don't have to worry about the election. I don't have to hear about COVID. I could go meditate for a month and I don't have to feel the dukkha of all these things that are so difficult right now. So she gets in her car and goes off. She and her partner go off to Idaho, this beautiful retreat center in the forest and they're able to get their meals. They have a quiet area for sitting. They're fully supported. And she gets to see autumn, which we don't see in LA. And she thought, ah, this is great. You know, so much better, so good, right? I don't have, I don't really, the election is over, COVID's over, my four walls staring at them over. And then she realizes, that there's dukkha. There's the dukkha of being with herself. There's the dukkha of boredom. There's the dukkha of watching her mind. There's the dukkha of ache in her body. I really hit home that the contemplation, the awareness, seeing the dukkha, being with the dukkha is the way through dukkha. Not running, but being with it as a condition and finding her center, her calm and her ease. And she said one of the most important things of that retreat was just facing with bare awareness that dukkha, 
moment to moment. Dukkha of boredom, dukkha of being, dukkha in the body, dukkha of the mind, and really coming to ease and equanimity with it. And we both giggled and said, you can't outrun dukkha. Even if you drive to Idaho, it will follow you, right? No running from dukkha. It's a good awareness for her, really deepened her practice. And so um, today I wanna also talk about though, when we look at these three marks, the relationship to metta, to loving kindness, when we look at the marks of existence, metta and loving kindness can play an important role. And I'll come to that a little bit later. So uh, the other mark of existence is impermanence. How um, we try to make permanent what's impermanent. And there's a way that we cling to not have change that we resist change and we don't really like to see it. And there are ways that we get caught by clinging to uh, the desire for permanence or the desire for things not to change. And a good example of this came from one of my spirit rock teachers at the DPP program that I was in. And she told a story of, um, dedicating all of her income to practice, long retreats, uh, going to Burma to sit, uh, training to be a teacher. So she had very little money, no money, and was taking public transportation for years, which is not easy to do in California. And she finally had enough money from her Donna, she was teaching, to buy a car for the first time in like 10 years. And she buys this used car and then finds herself um, just obsessing over the car. Did it get a nick or dent? Is there something wrong? Should I polish it? Should I get it washed? Should I take it to the mechanic? What can I do? What if it gets hit? What if I get in an accident? And she said, this was such an opportunity for her to come back to impermanence and ownership and selfing of our objects, right? Of, you know what, this car one day will break down. Maybe it will have a new owner. Uh, maybe it will get into an accident. All things change. And she could see her clinging into the car, wanting the car to be perfect all the time. And we can look for impermanence moment by moment everywhere that our body is not the same, our thoughts are not the same, our relationships are not the same. The book I've been reading over the holiday is um, by Thich Nhat Hanh and it's called um, Fragrant Palm Leaves. I don't know if any of you have read that book or seen the book, but he writes so beautifully about the dukkha and the wisdom the, the, the suffering, the wisdom, and the awakening in impermanence. Uh, how his life, the struggle with impermanence. He writes about um, trying to bring in a new form of Buddhism in Vietnam 
as a monk and uh, writing and doing um, a lot of teaching around and engaged Buddhism and the old guard of Buddhists in Vietnam at the time in the late 50s and early 60s, they didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, his idea of engaged Buddhism. Nothing. And he was flatly rejected and um, really kind of put out to pasture. So he and a few friends go to the forest, this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful forest, to set up a monastery and a community and to practice together. And he writes about um, the tenderness and love and beauty of this forest, how it sustained their practice and how it gave them shelter and just a deep way to practice in the forest, the relationship to the forest, his love of it. And um, yes, I'm going to repeat the name of the book many times. Yes. Um, so the thing that struck me was um, the government was also against Thich Nhat Hanh setting up a monastery and was threatened by it for whatever political reason. And they had to flee the forest and disperse for their safety. So um, in his writing, which is so tender and so beautiful of his love of this monastery, and the people who are with him in his early practice, the beauty of the forest sustaining them, he also writes of the impermanent nature that he could not even cling to that, that it had to change. And he comes to New York uh, for the first time leaving Vietnam, knowing no one at all, coming to a Western society and really having to deal with deep homesickness and loss, loss of, of his community in Vietnam and the emerging war that was beginning to happen, the danger that was happening in his country. Uh, he had to leave due to the threat. Um, so the book is permeated with dealing with the ethereal nature, how things come and go, the impermanence, of our existence and how we cling to it. But what I also have learned from the book and his writings is the loving kindness and the meta with which he sees his own clinging, loss, suffering, homesickness, wanting things to be different, the relationships he lost, the forest that he lost. You see the compassion and love for his own clinging for his own grieving, for his own grappling with his holding on to the attachment. It's not like he's judging himself with a harsh, critical, egoic state and pushing away his sadness, his depression, his longing, his grief. It's all in there, beautifully, beautifully written. It's like he embraces his desire for the impermanent not to be impermanent, wanting it to be permanent, wanting that monastery, wanting the forest and his Dharma friends, his Dharma, um, yeah, his Dharma friends. You could feel the compassion, loving kindness for his body, 
for his mind, for his state, for himself. And he doesn't leave his suffering in the book. You can, I, I highly recommend this book because you can see that he doesn't leave it. He doesn't run from his suffering. He doesn't try to get busy. He doesn't fill his life up with objects and things. He goes right into the pain, the dukkha, the heart of it, and sits there in his longing. And he, he brings the reader in to his pain. He doesn't say, oh, it's not me, or, uh, you know, I don't have a self, or this is just dukkha, this is just impermanent. He doesn't do a spiritual bypass at all. You know, he doesn't go, yeah, you know, he goes right into the heart of his suffering and sits in it and is aware of it, breathes with it, lives it all the way through. You, there are moments in the book where you see he retreats and he's alone. He goes to his room or he doesn't eat or he just meditates all day and prays and he processes it. And this is the paradox of impermanence, dukkha, no self, that when we fully embrace it and hold it and we're with it mindfully with awareness, wisdom comes in, practice comes in and transforms it into a deeper knowing of not self, a deeper knowing of, um, of practice of, of who we really are and who we take ourselves to be. And in this book, it's so beautiful how he reflects on, um, he's in winter in New York City, craving the jungle, craving the plants, the flowers, the food, the smell, the relationships of Vietnam, his family. And he says, oh, I take myself to be those things. I see those things around me and I cling to them and I create an identity. And when they're not here, I suffer. But he does it with loving kindness, with metta, with compassion, with a full heart and no judgment. And so I really, through his example, um, really want to point to the importance of a loving kind place for us when we look at these things and we're not, we're clinging. We're clinging to our dukkha. We're clinging to the removal of our dukkha. We're clinging to wanting things to be very permanent and solid and secure. Um, that's where the metta comes in because the metta dissolves this sense of me. Sometimes the me is a big inner critic that's rejecting, rejecting everything, just rejecting being human. You know, we reject our humanness. We reject the fact that our culture really um, prescribes a sense of self that's very difficult to break through, you know. Our, our culture says, buy things, crave things, and you're going to be a lot happier. And then we're not happier. Our culture says, build security, you know, create a self, create an image, and then we suffer. But we're hypnotized by our culture. And when 
we're clinging, craving, suffering, adding that dukkha, that's where loving kindness really comes in. You can't work through it. You can't hold it in awareness without a soft, gentle place to unpack it. And over and over in his book, I watch him going into his pain, re retreating and heading right on in with compassion, such a great example. So the other part is anatta, not self. And again, it's none of these are absolute truths, but a way to see life differently, an invitation to hold our perceptions and our awareness very, very differently. Um, so one of my friends was contemplating an anatta and no self, uh, non-dual. And one of the things she was contemplating is very simple. She was contemplating at what point does air become my breath? You know, where in the nostril is air, which is everywhere and all around us and for everyone, where is it breath? What's that point? And that was like a koan for her about how she creates my, my body, my hair, right? My, my hair, my youth, my looks, my thoughts, my image of myself and you, my opinions, right? What I like, what I don't like. Like she, that was her entry level into how real is my eye? How real is my eye? How real is it? We take ownership of our body, but very honestly, I do not know how blood flows. I have no ownership in the way my blood flows. I have no ownership in, um, in how I make saliva and digest food. Or like, how does the body know how many red blood cells to make and how many white blood cells? Uh, wh why do lungs go like this and what makes them go like this? You know, like, what is this body that I think I own? It has uh, its own nature, its own process, even pain. I don't control it. Comes and it goes. So um, we, we can contemplate that as a way in of whose body is it really? Whose mind is it really? What's the ownership? And you could even play with it by looking around the room that you're in. Um, it, maybe there's a lamp or a chair or a desk, a phone, a bed. You know, is it yours? Is it really yours? Do you own it? Well, in a way you do, in a way you not. It may be there'll be new owners in this house, in these four walls. I'll move on. Another owner will come. These objects will come and go. They'll break. So um, you can really challenge who we take ourselves to be and mine, me and mine, as a way to uproot the additional suffering. So let's see what I wrote. So what is nature 
what is need. And I'll read you some a little bit from his book if I can get to it. And I think I can. Um, and one way to just practice is to ask yourself. And remember, it's a middle path. It's not no self, no identity. But to stop and pause and say, you know, give yourself that break with loving kindness. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not myself. You know, to release the identification in our relationships, in our objects, in our clinging, there's a ease and a calm and a kind of softening when we do that, surprisingly. So um, this uh, Dharma friend, and, and what we're doing is we're releasing craving sometimes, the additional suffering. And when you bring in that metta, when you bring in loving kindness, whether it's through, through a phrase that you're using or just radiating kindness, you notice that there begins to be more space around objects, softness and appreciation. But sometimes it's not there. Um, and so my friend who was contemplating the breath versus air, when is this air? When is it the breath? Who do I take myself to be? What do I own? Right? It's a beautiful, I love that contemplation. She said she was really trying to stay with this not self concept and studying, reading. And a dear, dear friend of hers um, criticized her. You know, she felt criticized and judged. And, uh, she knows this friend is a loving being and really didn't mean it, but it wounded her to the core. So I know each of you have had an experience like that. I certainly have. And she said that um, she was wanted to let it go, right? Not self, impermanent, dukkha, like she was just saying it in her head, but her heart, her inner child, you know, this parts of her that were vulnerable, were contracted, tight, sad, wounded, defended. She really wanted to lash out at her friend and she wanted to shout and yell at her, you know. Um, she also felt deflated and like failure, you know, shame at what her friend had said. So there was a lot of dukkha and she couldn't let it go. She was tight. She's like, it's not working. So what we did was we let it be exactly where it was. You know, we allowed it to be present in the way the state visits. It's impermanent, but we don't always know it, right? So we just allowed her to be where she was, to sense and feel into what that pain felt like, how it felt in her body, what her mind was doing it, not to be so attached to say, ah, the body, it feels just like this. The mind, it's just like this. This is where the mind goes. Emotion comes up, early memories come up. If we can be kind, loving kindness, metta releases and gives space. It releases, it gives space, it gives calm. So she can just sense and feel into the whole story that arose. And not so much her, 
this is just what it is to be a human being. This is a human being. Things come and go, difficult things come and go. Sometimes things come, we don't even understand it fully, but it's here. So as she sat with it, breathed with it, commented, got to know it, became aware, much like in Thich Nhat Hanh's book, what he was doing at those moments, it began to release itself. And in time, she could feel the loving kindness for her own suffering, for the knot that came up, for her friend, and for everyone, because we all kind of suffer just like this. We all have those moments just like this. They're tough, but it's bringing that metta in and bringing that loving kindness in that softens that sense of self. Love softens the self. Love softens the self into the sea of love. Love joins us. So I'll read you a little bit from Thich Nhat Hanh and then we'll, we'll stop here because I, I, there's so many beautiful writings by him. And I've read this, this one before about uh, where is the self? Who is the self? And this interbeing, we're all connected. And he says, um, if you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in the sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow. Without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper into are. Interbeing is a word that is not in the dictionary yet. But if we combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb, interbe. If we look more into the sheet of paper even more deeply, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. In fact, nothing can grow. Even we cannot grow without sunshine. And so we know that the sunshine is also in the sheet of paper. Um, and, if, and he goes on. If we continue to look, we can see the logger who cut the tree and brought it to the mill. And we can see wheat. We know the logger cannot exist without his daily bread. And therefore the wheat has become his bread is also in this sheet of paper. And the logger's father and mother are in it too. When we look at it this way, we see that without all of these things, the sheet of paper cannot exist. We could also see where do we begin and end really, you know? Um, so I'll read you one, a few more from his book. He says, I'm happy, so look at the time, I'm happy to be on this earth. The river reflects everything in herself. Thanks to the river's flow, uh, the flux of life is possible and death lies within life because without death, there could be no life. Let us welcome the flow. Let us welcome impermanence and non-self. 
Thanks to impermanence and non-self, we have the beautiful world praised by Zen poets. And he goes on. Um, and I just want to read this sweet little part to you, uh, a few paragraphs down. One day I sat by the window, and this is in Vietnam, of a friend's home and watched a scene I could have watched forever. Across the street was a low roofed dry goods store. Coils of rope and barbed wire, pots and pans hung from the eaves. Hundreds of items were on display. Fish sauce and bean sauce, candles, peanut candy. The store was packed and dimly lit, and it was difficult to distinguish one object from another as the rainstorm darkened the street. A young boy, no more than five or six, wearing a simple pair of shorts, his skin darkened by hours of play in the sun, sat on a little stool in front of the step of the store. He was eating a bowl of rice protected by the overhang. Rain ran off the roof, making puddles in front of where he sat. He held his rice bowl in one hand and his chopsticks in the other, and he ate slowly, his eyes riveted on the stream of water pouring from the roof. Large drops exploded into bubbles on the surface of a puddle. Though I was across the street, I could tell that his rice was mixed with pieces of duck egg and sprinkled with fish sauce. He raised his chopsticks slowly to his mouth, savoring such small mouthful. He gazed at the rain and appeared to be utterly content, the very image of well-being. I could feel his heart beating, his lungs, stomach, liver, and all his organs were working in perfect harmony. Um, I looked at him as one might admire a perfect jewel, a flower, or a sunrise. Truth and paradise revealed themselves. I was completely absorbed by his image. He seemed to be a divine being, a young God embodying the bliss of well-being with every glance of his eyes and every bite of rice he took. He was completely free of worry or anxiety. He had no thought of being poor. He did not compare his simple black shorts to the fancy clothes of other children. He did not feel sad because he had no shoes. He did not mind that he sat on a hard stool rather than a cushioned chair. He felt no longing. He was completely at peace in the moment. Just by watching him, the same well-being flooded my body. And so he's describing a mind that's free of I-making and me-making and mine, judging, liking, not liking, commenting, evaluating, comparing, having a future, telling a story, just being with eating rice in the street, in a rainstorm, in a bowl, and the sweetness of it. This is anatta, not self. This is what the Buddha talked about too. No self was there, right? No commentary, just eating rice, bowl, rain. And I'll read a little bit further. Then I heard uh, him call out, coming mama. And he uh, stood up and went back into the shop. I guess his mother had called him back 
in to refill his rice bowl, but he did not come out again. Perhaps he was now eating with his parents who scolded him for dawdling so long over his first bowl. If that was the case, poor child, his parents did not know he had just been in paradise. They did not know that when the mind divides reality up, when it judges and discriminates, it kills paradise. Please do not scold the sunlight. Do not chastise the clear stream or the little birds of spring. How can you enter paradise unless you become like a little child? You can't see reality with the eyes that discriminate or base all their understanding on concepts. As I write these lines, I long to return to the innocence of childhood. I want to play in the Vietnamese children's game. You know, and he goes on. So I'll end here with a Rumi poem for our holiday time and hopefully connected to our interviewing the way we share this space together um, and have so lovingly and beautifully shared this space together and how it's deepened my practice. Um, calm, ease, peace the beauty of practice by sharing it and being with all of you. And this is by Rumi and it's called The Self We Share. Thirst is angry at water, hunger bitter with bread. The cave wants nothing to do with the sun. This is dumb, the self-defeating way we've been. A gold mind is calling us into its temple. Instead we bend, and keep picking up rocks from the ground. Everything has a shine like gold, but we should turn to the source. The origin is what we truly are. I add a little vinegar to the honey I give. The bite of scolding makes ecstasy more familiar. But look fish, you've already in the ocean. Just swimming there makes you friends with glory. What are these grudges about? You are Benjamin. Joseph has put a gold cup in your grain sack and accused you of being a thief. Now he draws you aside and says, you are my brother. I am a prayer. You are the amen. We move in eternal regions, yet worry about property here. This is the prayer of each. You are the source of my life. You separate essence from mud. You know my soul. You bring rivers from the mountain springs. You brighten my eyes. The wine you offer takes me out of myself into the self we share. Doing that is religion. So taking a moment or two, we'll go into the breakout room. A question would be, how is this teaching? This is not me. This is not mine. This is not my computer, my desk, my air, my breath, right? Where does it end? Where does it begin? How does anatta serve you? Or does it not? 
And how does loving kindness and compassion carry you through these hard times? So we'll have our breakout rooms. And if you don't want to be in a room, you can stay in the main room and just sit. Um, it'd be great to have you to the end. Um, case we can get Anne to play, <laughs> we'll see, uh, and to end with some meta. Okay, so Don will hopefully do the breakout rooms. So um, we're nearing the end. We're going to have Anne do, because it's the end of the year and our last sit, if, if we can arrange this with sound, Anne will do a little chant. We'll come back and do a little um, meta and we may go over by a minute or two. So my apologies. And um, don't forget Donna donations, um, always accepted and grateful for that. Um, join us at seven and seven and think about the retreat at the end of a month as a way to support our Long Beach Sangha and reserve our space for the following year up at Big Bear as well. So all those things to think about. Have a great New Year's, and Anne, we'll we'll make we'll give this our best effort. Okay, am I good? I'm that. Okay, all right. Phew. Um, okay, this this chant is one that um, Wendy had asked me to do. It's Om Asatoma Sad Gamaya, Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya. Mrityorma umritam gamaya om shanti 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 hi. It is basically translated, lead us from unreality to reality, from darkness to light, from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace. Um, okay, here we go. Masatoma sad gamaya, Tamasoma jotir gamaya, Mrityor mamritam gamaya, O Masatoma sad gamaya, Tamasoma jotir gamaya, Mrityor mamritam gamaya, O Masatoma sad gamaya, Tamasoma jotir gamaya. Mrityor mahamritam gamaya, O masatoma sad gamaya, Tamasoma jotir gamaya, Mrityor mahamritam gamaya, O shanti, O shanti, O shanti, shanti, shanti. Shanti. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Can I ask what the origin is of that or what lineage? This is, I think it's, um, I think it's actually from the, the Hindu tradition. I don't think it's Tibet. It's the Vedic tradition. Okay. Uh, it's usually sung at the conclusion of various kinds of religious ceremonies derived from the Vedic tradition. One can hear it exactly the same way in India, Trinidad, or the Philippines. It's a prayer for us as well. Um, so I, a lot of the stuff that I've been doing has been from the Vedic 
Um, there's a few Tibetan ones I've been learning, but um, there's just so many rich, rich chants that I've been learning this year. And I'm really, um, I'm grateful to be able to share them, you know, and, and I know, um, so thank wonderful. you. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, Anne's often been doing the chants with us at the 7 p.m. sits every night. Uh, she's often does them, so come join us. Uh, it's really been such a treat to have that extra thing. Uh, we're on for tonight at seven, right, Anne? Sure. We have a little group coming in. Yeah, so come anybody tonight seven, but we've been doing the 7 p.m. and uh, it's uh, it's been such a blessing. So yeah. A fun way to end good way to end the evening thank you yeah if anybody does know the venmo uh number for donna please put it up but i don't know it so it's in the newsletter i think <laughs> uh yeah so um, but I, i'm not sure if there's a little dash in between the sunday okay. bit. oh let me check uh, oh susan left um there it's a uh, it's important it's a space not a dash. Um, it won't find it if you don't put the space in when you're searching. So it's Sunday space sit and then search and you sh it should pop up. Okay. So that's correct the way it is. I believe so. Okay. Thanks, Shannon. All right. So uh, gathering the benefits of the practice, the merit of our practice and the time spent today. May the benefits be not just for ourselves, although that's so important in our group, but reach all beings, particularly all beings in hospitals, all beings who are serving the ill, all beings who are ill and their families, all the service workers, essential workers, anyone hurting and in pain, we hold everyone in this group in our hearts with kindness, compassion, and care. We, expand, we extend our metta. May all beings be safe. May they be free of harm. May they be healthy, protected, well-fed, and have the care they need. May all beings be free of suffering. May they be free of the roots of suffering. And may the wisdom of our practice and the kindness of the practice, all these teachings, may they saturate the earth right now. May all beings be safe, happy, and free of suffering. just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.